Okay, now let's see. Let's. I'm getting all settled in here. Yeah, I'm getting old. Okay, wait. Oh, yeah, that's working. But I really want to... Okay. Pat, I, I want to on that side. Okay, okay. There's, there's, no, there's no excuse for any of this. Okay, so whatever you're thinking, it's true. Oh, yes. Well, first of all, before I get started, I thank you, Carla, for that delightful introduction. But I also, I, I want all my, can you, you, can you come up here and can you come? Now, what you know is I have four biological children. What you don't know is I have 35 non-biological um, children that my husband and I adopted. And tonight, um, my oldest daughter is here, and she's going to be sharing uh, some of her story with you tonight. This is my oldest daughter, Amy. I know, and isn't it exciting that we have Amy? And then, of course, I wanted you to see my little kitty, and of course, the my youngest daughter Abby, and then of course our lovely Natalie. And so, you know, I feel like the man in Proverbs whose quiver is full, and when your quiver is full, you are blessed. Thank you, ladies. You don't have to stand anymore. They're they're so I can't I can't really do this there. All right. So I, you're going to notice right away that I sat down, I took a very comfortable position, and I'm not um, preaching at you. I hope that tonight we're going to learn together. And it is my heart's, I love the Word of God, I love to study it, I love to know what it says, and as I was praying about being with you, you, you can, you, I want you to know that as this talk goes on, this is, you're going to hear, here's who my heart is and here's who I am. If you need coffee, please. You go right over there. You just pour that right in. You need a glass of water. You go right over there. You've, there is no judgment from the front. The dessert is right over here, and there's still there's more. So I want you to understand that I am that. You are now in your living room, and as my daughter said, I said, "So Abby, what should I say when I get up there?" She said, "Tell them that you just want to share God's word with them, and and what you've been studying lately." And so why? Are we studying tonight the book of Esther? Because I had a granddaughter named Esther. And when I had her, I thought, you know, I want to rediscover who God destined her to be. Because I believe that names are important. And that God gives us names with purpose and and meaning. You know, they're pregnant with that. And so I began to get some commentaries and extra notes so that I could study about my granddaughter and what God might be up to with her. And in that uh, kind of discovery about my granddaughter, a really interesting thing happened. I started to see a real theme in Esther that even though I had adored the book growing up and had loved my dad reading me the book of Esther, uh, I never had seen some of these themes before. And so uh, some of you know that I'm married to Pastor Ed, and Pastor Ed is a rock star, okay? So, you know, like he, I fell in love with him when he was preaching. See, I was in seminary. This is such a good story. This is totally divergent, and this is free. Um, <laughs> yeah, you don't have to pay for this one, but I just have to tell you. So we're in seminary. We're in an urban preaching class in New York City. And I go, I'm dating another boy, another man. And he, he was a very handsome Marine and uh, stationed at Paris Island. And he was actually picking me up after this class. But Pastor Ed got up to preach this class. And I kid you not, when, while he's preaching, like he was fiery and he was passionate. Man, I could not miss the love of Jesus in this man. And it was so attractive to me. I leaned over to my roommate, who's also in the class, and I said, Heidi, I want to marry a man that preaches like that. Yes, and I'm here to say that it happened. (laughs) And the children are the proof of it. (laughs) So... um, But my my husband is an awesome uh, expositor of God's word. And one of his favorite sermons that he preaches over and over and over again, because, you know, we work with young people on the north side, and they are often under the impression that they are not important, that they are a mistake, and that somehow, in God's master plan, 
they were never a part of it. And they were an afterthought of it. And so while God may have a plan for everyone else's life, certainly he doesn't have a plan for their lives. And so Ed preaches a sermon called Created for a Purpose. And uh, I've heard it so many times, I can quote the lines out of it, but um, it's true. Do you know that each one of us was created by God for a purpose? Because you were created to do what only you can do. And I was created to do what only I can do. And did you know that you were not born in this century by accident? Did you know that you weren't, uh, you, you weren't born in this decade by accident? You weren't here in this room by accident. You're not an accident. And that God has a plan for your life. He created you. It says in Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created... Write that down, Ephesians 2.10. Are you got them? We gave you notebooks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Way to go. No, you, know, you have to know that I'm, I'm not always appropriate. Um, okay, so Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, when, when is the advance? Before he created the earth. Jesus was at creation. We know this from John chapter 1 in the New Testament. And, but before you were even created, before your mother and father made you, God has works planned for each one of us that only we can do. And when we don't fulfill our destiny and our purpose, everything in God's economy is less. And Satan knows it, and he tries to convince each one of us that we are not worthy for a destiny, that we don't have a destiny, that our destiny is not important, and we cannot grab hold of it. And so by not grabbing hold of it, the kingdom of God is not built to its fullest. There are people who do not hear the gospel because you're shut down. I'm shut down because I'm not, I'm not walking in my purpose that God created me for. And so um, tonight... Uh, I want to open the book of Esther because the book of Esther is, and I, I, I know you're going to say, gosh, geez, Tim, you have a lot of notes. And it's true. And I got all these phones and I got Bibles. I got a lot of stuff going on up here. But I'll tell you why. I, as I studied, there was so much that I wanted to tell you. I didn't want to forget any of it. And so I wrote copiously so that you could, um, so that some of these things I would actually read to you. Uh, so the story of Esther is an example of how at a crucial moment in history, the covenant promises God made were fulfilled, not by his miraculous intervention, but through completely ordinary events. And he used a woman to do it. Okay. The Esther story could be your story because God wants to take ordinary events in your life to fulfill his extraordinary promises to you. Can I say that again? God will take ordinary events in your life to fulfill his extraordinary promises to you. Esther is the one book of the Bible that does not mention the name of God, and Holly knows this. <laughs> That's right, Holly Campbell knows this, because Holly, you know, that I'm even teaching today is, Amazing. Holly, Holly has a Sunday school class on Sunday mornings. I'm shamelessly plugging it. It is a great Sunday school class. It's on heaven. Everyone, you need to be at Christ Church at 845 and be at Holly's class. I was sick this last week. I missed it. But Maxine brought me notes. So I'm, I'm filled up. But Esther doesn't uh, mention the name of God in her book at all. And at first glance, you might think that God is absent now, sometimes, because God might not have been present in part of your story, or his name wasn't mentioned in your story, that somehow God was absent 
from a part of your story. And I'm here to tell you tonight that that is not true. God is working in your story. That's right. Amen, right? Okay. And at first glance, we might think God is absent, but Esther's story proves that God is always working behind the scenes in our lives to cause us to walk in our destiny on earth. Now, I want to just make a little side note before we go on. I want to say this. I want to say that sometimes there are those of you, especially if you're young and you really love Jesus. So there's a lot of you out there. I see you. And I want you to know if you're a young person and you really love the Lord, one of the things that I've learned over the years is that you are terrified you're going to miss the will of God. You're afraid you're going to marry the wrong person. You're afraid you're going to take the wrong job. You're afraid that you're not going to make the right step. And I want to tell you right now that as we go through the story, you're going to see how God supernaturally moved Esther all around to get her just to the place that he needed her to be. But let me tell you, the reason that he could do that is because Esther wanted to be in the will of God. Esther loved God. If you love God and you want his will, all right, every young person, look at me. Look right here. Yeah, yeah, right here. I love you, Ava. I want you to know that if you want, God wants you to be in his will more than you want to be there, right? You don't really want to be in God's will as much as he wants you to be in his will. So if you're worried, if you're worried about being in his will, you're going to be there. If you care, if you pray, Lord, I want your will more than mine. Guess what? That's a prayer you know he's going to answer because he wants you in his will more than you want to be there. Right? Now, all the young people, go to sleep for just a minute. If you're older, let me tell you this. You will not miss what God has for you in the future if you want to be in God's will because he wants you there more than you want to be there. So don't worry about your physical capabilities. Don't worry about just seek him and he'll get you there because he wants you there more than you want to be there. Isn't that a great, isn't that, you have everything you need to accomplish God's purpose in your life. Everything you need. Because when God created you, he said, I need this to be done. And Louise, I created you perfectly to do it. And so, Louise, this job that I created for you, it may not be what you were thinking of, but you want to know what? You have everything. So when he asks you to do something that's bigger than you, you don't have to worry. Because why? Because he created you to do it. And God will equip the called. He never calls the, well, he sometimes does, but rarely, but more often than not, God equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. And so, um, when I was going to start the choir, uh, I was going to a music conference in California, and every year I would go to be with my sister because she is a musician, and she can play three instruments, and she has perfect pitch, and she can arrange music like nobody you've ever seen. The most beautiful harmonies come out of my sister's head. So I would go to a music conference every year, and I would sit with my sister because she was getting music for her choir, she was awesome. And one year, as I sat in that conference, the Holy Spirit fell on me. And I knew he was asking me to do something. And I, the, the guy who was singing, his name uh, is Ron Cannoli, and he started singing, If you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. If you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. Take my hands, Lord, and my feet. Touch my lips, Lord, speak through me. If you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. And man, the Holy Spirit came on me. And I said, I'm just a thing just a thing, but if you want to use me, I'll be your thing. And the Lord, the Spirit of God came on me, and I just 
bowed my head and I was crying and I said, Lord, I am not the one. I think you landed on the wrong one. She said, right there. It goes that way. Right? And he said, no, I choose you. I don't play any instruments. I sing like Lucille Ball. I sound like I've smoked 10 packs of cigarettes all my life. I have a gravelly voice. You hear it and you know it. Don't even lie. Right? I'm like, and I did, I did. I said, Lord, I think your spirits missed the person. But I didn't know what God, but God said, he whispered, because Ed had already preached this sermon. He said, I've given you everything you need to do what I've called you to do. I've given you every gift that you need to accomplish the purpose that I've set out for you to do. So just say yes. I will do the rest. So this weekend, we have just some precious moments that we're going to share together. And I want you to say, yes. God is such a gentleman, he will never make you do anything. In Revelation, it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And we think that that's about people who haven't received Christ. He's talking to Christians. Go back and read it again. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man or woman... Here's my voice. I will come in with him. I will sup or have fellowship with him. He stands at the door and knocks. Why? Because he's a gentleman and he doesn't force his way into your life. He just looks for a heart that says yes. So this weekend we're talking about the most important thing in your life. And that is your purpose. That God created you for. And I'm going to help you as best I can to discover what that is and help you and position you in such a way that we can hear from the Holy Spirit so that we can say that we can become the yes of God. All right, we're going to pray now. I'm not done, though. I, I just thought some of you thought that it was over, and I... I love you guys. Already, you are with me, but look how much notes I have. Okay. <laughs> We're going to pray now. The intro is over. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we love you so much, and we love you and thank you that you are an extraordinary God who will accomplish extraordinary things through your people. Help us, Lord, as we review a familiar story to hear with new ears so that we might be released from any self-imposed limitations. Break every limitation, every bond that the enemy has placed in our lives. As your word says in Isaiah 52, 2, Lord, loose thyself, O captive daughter of Zion. Lord, we pray in your matchless name that we would loose ourselves from every limitation, barrier, obstruction, and demonic mindset that keeps us from fulfilling our God-given purpose. Lord, we are not in this world by chance. We are not in this decade by chance. And we are not in this room by chance. We are modern-day Esthers. Help us to believe it and walk in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's, we're going to get going now. And then we're going to go kind of fast because I can't keep you here all night, even though I like talking. Abby says, you really like to talk about the Bible. I said, I know. All right, so let's recap. How many of you have ever heard a pastor preach a sermon on Esther? Wow, not very, wait, raise high. Look, more, that's, I would say less than, well, maybe half, maybe half of you have. That's pretty awesome if you have. This is not a highly preached book, so I'm kind of excited about that. Um, and could you share with me afterwards if I've missed some of the high points? I would. I am open to learn. All right. So the story of Esther is that Esther, out of all the young girls of the kingdom, a Jewish orphan girl, becomes the queen of the mightiest nation in the then known world. And while queen, she discovers a plot that will destroy her people. And demonstrating great courage, she risks her life to save her people. 
And God gives her favor with the king, who at this time she is married to, and then gives Esther the permission to decree the destruction of the very people who are plotting to destroy her people. Now, let me put this in a more modern-day context because I always think sometimes it's hard to see the import of what we're talking about. So imagine for a moment with me that uh, this would have been Nazi Germany in the 1930s, and um, it would be like a woman being given permission to kill Hitler and the Gestapo before everyone was sent to the concentration camps and before the horrible atrocities. Now... Do you see that this is a really big deal? Like this is a really big deal. People would have, it would have, it. it listen, the, the 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 Nazis had nothing on the Persians. Okay. So, this is it's huge. So let's set this up. So after seventy years of captivity, Israel had been a nation. They go into captivity and they're captured by the Babylonians. The Babylonians live in present-day what? Iraq. Right. Excellent. Excellent. I love this group. Yeah, they're in Iraq, right? But then uh, the Persians, who are the Iranians, they come and they capture the Babylonian Empire, which was actually all the way up in Persia at that time because Susa is up in Persia, And so they're there for 70 years, and then the Persians come in, and they take over, and the Persians prided themselves on being a people who were nicer to the people that they captured than the Babylonians were. (laughs) So it was sort of, you know, a contest. And so they came in, and they said, hey, all you Jewish people that have not been able to go back to your hometown, you've been forced captives here and and kind of our our servant class you're going to have the opportunity now to go back if you choose and you can rebuild your temple. And that's Ezra. The book of Ezra in your Bible is about that event where the Persians say, go back and build your temple. Now, not everybody went back because they're going back to a war-torn Israel. There's nothing there. There's 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 no running water, there's no showers, there's no, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not good, there's no plumbing, there's no electricity, there was not then. I'm just teasing. Um, <laughs> you can laugh, it's okay. So, no, but there were no amenities, and there was no, it was hard to grow food, and so not everybody went back. Why? Because this is the picture I wanted to show you. I wanted to show you the picture that they have drawn of Susa, and some of your Bibles say Shusha or how do you say that, Holly? Shusha, I don't know. Anyway, but it's Susa. And so let me just tell you what it looked like. Because my picture, I'm going to tell you about this picture. So imagine uh, Susa was set between two rivers, very much like Pittsburgh, except they didn't converge. And so they diverted. They had huge aqueducts, and these were built by the Babylonians, actually. And it's how the Babylonians went down, because the Persians snuck in through the aqueducts and took over in the middle of the night. We'll come back to that story because it does matter and it's part of our story. So anyway, they're in these, they brought all this water and they made beautiful pools. Like think of the biggest, vastest swimming pool you could think of in that beautiful water. And they looked like they were very still giant pools, bigger than this room, bigger than the hotel, like big pools of water. And the water was coming into these rivers. And so as it would come in, and it was, you know, sent into the city via these aqueducts. It would, they had giant waterfalls that would, this is the pool, and it would just, and it fell thousand feet down to the next pool where, you know, part of the city was. And it was spectacular. And the Babylonians used lapis to make tile, uh, the, the lapis stone. And so when I was in college, I went to Germany and studied abroad. And while I was there, they go, we're going to a museum. And while we're there, we're going to go see the Babylonian gates. Now, how do you see them? Because what happened during the war, they stole all those giant things. We walked into a room, no lie. It was five times probably as tall as this room. It It was like a giant warehouse. And the Germans had taken bit by bit, stone by stone, the Babylonian gates of this city apart and reconstructed them there. And it was, it was, Lori, stand up. 
Look at the blue of Lori's sweater. No, the, uh, Lori, I'm sorry. It's that Lori. Because your sweater's red. It's red. It, the gates are that color. And then they have giant lions and other... There's another creature. I don't know what it is, but they're like five times the size of a man. And they, this is a spectacular city. I mean, this is a city that had a middle class. Like, when I say a middle class, it's better than your middle class. A middle-class home had 20 rooms in it and servants. And, like, it was crazy. Like, this was a really, it was a hopping city. It was a place to live. It was the center of culture and of technology of their day. And so there were a lot of Jews who didn't want to go back because it would be like camping to go home. I know, I'm not a camper. I'm an urban person. (laughs) And so they stayed They stayed in Susa. Esther is one of those Jews who did not go back. So is her uncle Mordecai. Now, what do we know about uh, Esther? Now, let's put her in, in, well, we'll come back to that maybe. Let's just keep going. Just so you know, this is a historical event. So when you go back in history, you can find this because Darius the Great, lived in 521 to 486 B.C. Xerxes, his son, ruled from 486 to 465. Then Artaxerxes I, which is in our Bibles, King Ahasuerus, he ruled from 464 to 423 B.C. This is all like common knowledge because it's not just in your Bible. And now why am I telling you that? Because there might be one of you who doesn't believe that the Bible, that this is a, a biblical, or, that the Bible is true. Historical. historical. This is an historical document as well as it is true. History knows that Esther lived. When you go and you try Googling, Esther comes up everywhere. Josephus wrote about Esther. All these Jewish people in Babylon wrote about her. All these other Jewish people. People that were historians wrote about her in, in, in Jerusalem. Because, because why? Because she saved them all, and, and it was a big deal. It was a big edict, and she turned the tables on them. So, now, I want to clarify one other thing before we move on, because I really don't want you to doubt what you're reading in your Bible. And so we remember, it's not just enough to believe it. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it. Some of you are going to read the, in your Bible. It says Ahasuerus, and some of you are reading Artaxerxes. And you're saying, Tammy, they have two names in, in this. And you're saying one name. My Bible says a different name. And clearly there's a mistake. No, let me explain to you what's happening. If you go, when I tell you that I went to Spain and I studied in Spain, we talk about Spain and we talk about Spanish dancers. But when I was in Spain, what do they call Spain? España. No one calls it Spain. They're like, what? Right? Because Spain is English. España is Spanish. It's the same thing. We have two languages going on here. We have a Hazuerus who's Jewish. The way we say Artaxerxes in the other language, we say Hazuerus. And you can see that they're, they're linked, but it's the same person. Okay, so I don't want you to get caught up on that. And if you do, you just remember Spain and España. Okay. <laughs> Now, so her palace would have been in the citadel or fortress of Susa. It was a fortress. It wasn't just a beautiful place. And um, again, you've got two names going on, Susa or Shusa. Again, it's the same difference. One is Jewish, Shusa, and I'm not going with that one because it's hard for my braces. But so we're going with Susa, all right? And that's how we're calling it. And um, so in this incredible city, this is where Hadassah, because that's Esther's Jewish name, is growing up. This is where she finds herself. She's an orphan. Somehow her parents died. There's no uh, clear evidence on how or when. There's some speculation, but we're not going with that because I couldn't find anything that was real. So she was adopted by her cousin, her uncle's son, and his name is Mordecai. And he was uh, some kind of something initially in the palace. He he wrote things down as some kind of scribe. So he has a job in the palace. So she probably 
lived fairly comfortably. I'm sure that, you know, he had a decent job is what I'm trying to say. He wasn't poor. They weren't poor. And uh, so she had, and she is, you know, growing up and having a good life. And she's likely beginning to think about getting married and having a family. And, and you know, and she probably has built some relationships with the, the Jewish community because it was a remnant, was fairly tight-knit. They continued their traditions and they continued to uh, practice the law you know, of Moses. And so they were uh, unto themselves. And this is what created part of the dislike of them is because they were unto themselves. They, they had their own traditions, you know, and, and they wouldn't kind of just become Persians. They wouldn't just assimilate, like assimilate for goodness sake, you know, but they didn't. And so this tight knit, knit Jewish group existed and that's Hadassah. That's where she lived. And then uh, suddenly everything changed overnight, just like that. Now, I want you to pause. Stop the story. Sometimes in our lives, we're going along and everything is just like this. And then just like that, everything changes. God is even in that. Because sometimes they're awful changes. Sometimes they're good changes. The good ones we welcome. The awful ones we want to pray them away. And there's nothing wrong with praying them away. Because, but I want you to understand that God will use the good and the bad in our lives. The, see, Satan would try to destroy us from accomplishing our purpose, but he is unable to. He, he cannot take it from you. He cannot rob you of your purpose because God is bigger and greater. So even when something bad happens and you feel derailed from the purpose God called you for, you need to realize that Satan cannot take it away. All he can do is mess with you. But your purpose was established before creation. And nothing, not even an event that happens like that, can take it away. So she's living her life. She's a happy little girl. She has a wonderful cousin who's like an uncle, and he takes care of her, and he adores her. And he, we know that he adores her because in this story, he finds ways to check on her and gets messages to her and, and what she, he would have had to do because where she's going is not a nice place. But one night, the queen, uh, Vashti, who is the king's wife, and Vashti, by the way, is the granddaughter of King Nebuchadnezzar. Who's Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian king who was there when Daniel was taken captive, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's the king of them. He's the one that threw the boys in the fiery furnace, right? And then her, her the father was Belteshazzar, and he's the one who saw the handwriting on the wall, right? And Daniel comes in, the meeny, meeny, tickle your face, he says, you're not, you're not living long. That's her father. And that night... That night after the handwriting on the wall is when the Persians came in and sacked them, came through the aqueduct and took over Babylon and it flipped, right? That's, and somehow this little girl escapes and she becomes the wife of Artaxerxes or Ahasuerus, but we're going to call him from this point on, he's Artaxerxes, all right? So that's who that girl is. So she's no schmuck. She's a royal, she's the royal chick and... <laughs> So, so the king has had a giant party. He is so, he is so rich. I mean, so rich, right? He has a party for 180 days. Everybody in the place has gold goblets. Not, not, no, no, not that. Not, not even, no, not even echo where. He has real gold and not silver. No, gold. Everybody has a different one, it says. Wow, wow. I would think that would be easy to steal. I don't know. I just think a match set might be better thought out. He is so rich, and he, he, he's drinking and having a party for 180 days. That is a very long time to party. I think anyone will get tired of it. So, um, he's, these, so he goes, okay, we're done with that. Now we're just going to have... Um, the people that are from out of town, um, the, you guys have had enough parties and probably what it was, it was like 180 days of, of parties of, and honoring different people and, 
you know, I don't, I don't know exactly. I wasn't actually there. Um, but he now has this other party. That, that 180 days is over. He has a week-long party for people who are out-of-towners. And he wants everyone to have what they want. He, he, he has some rule where you just drink what you want. Not, you, no one's made to drink. and So he's trying not to step on any out-of-towners' toes. And um, while he's there, he drinks a lot too much. Okay? And so he's really kind of drunk. And you know how, how men can kind of get, you know, like when they're just all men. And they, I want to use a word, but it's inappropriate in a room full of ladies. They were having like a spitting contest, if you will. And they all are talking about, you know, our women are prettier than your women. And finally the king is hurt enough because he's really drunk. And he says, ah. Oh, my wife is prettier than all of your women's. And he sends a note to her and says, I want you to come out. And if you read it in the Bible, it says, wearing your crown. And every Jewish scholar, the Christian scholars, by the way, this you will find slightly humorous. I did. They don't say it. They, they won't say it. But every Jewish one will. They, he's telling her to come out naked with just her crown on her head. And they're all drunk, and he wants to show off his wife. Now, this is in the land where you do or die, and so uh, she doesn't do it. Now, there's great debate over her character because there, there are tons of Jewish stories that say that Vashti was a horrible person herself, that she would make the Jewish women come in and take their clothes off and work in front of her because she, she knew that it was degrading to them. So it's not like Vashti was this you know, bastion of purity, although the Jewish people who lived in, in Jerusalem, they, they think she was nice. But the Babylonian ones, all the people that lived in Babylonia, those scholars all say she was wicked. So, you know, it's hard to say. But the people who lived where she lived, most everyone says she was not a nice person. So it wasn't her own. Uh, in other words, she basically they say that she said to the king, look, you are my father's stable boy. I'm not coming out there and parading around for your friends naked. Because remember, she was royalty. She was Nebuchadnezzar's granddaughter. She was the daughter of Belshazzar. And for whatever reason, we, we won't know until we, we go to heaven and get it straight from Esther's mouth. But whatever happened, she does not do what she's supposed to do. And the king banishes her. And the Jewish texts will tell us that they think that not only was she banished, but in her banishment she was probably killed. Now, uh, so this sets up the scene where the king wakes up at the next week, and you know a week later he is now sober, and he, he is regretting the decision that he made. He feels bad. He, he made a bad choice. And so he's down, and his advisors who advised him to really come down on her now are saying, hey, dude, it's okay. We can fix this. We'll go round up the pretties in the kingdom, get them all together, and we'll bring them in, and then you can have one a night. And we'll get all the nice virgins for you, round them up, and bring them in, and every night you get to sleep with a different one. Till you find your queen, like, and he perks up. <laughs> he he was down, and the Bible, the Bible is so crazy that it talks. He perks up. He's like, yeah, that is a such a good idea. <laughs> now, yeah, and so um, this is now a lot of people idealize and they portray this as some kind of beauty pageant. But I want to read Esther. If you want, Esther chapter 2, verse 8. This is what it says. And we're going to spend the, the bulk of our time here in chapter 2 of Esther. So it was, when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, that Esther was also taken, or also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Hegai, the custodian of the women. I want to highlight the word, was taken, to the king's palace. Most Jewish commentators believe that Mordecai hid her for several, as long as he could, maybe a year, maybe, we, they don't know. 
they just know that there's this the gathering of the the virgins t- was it took some time and they think that he hit her and as long as he could and then somebody ratted him out and they came and got her and she was taken now this is no beauty pageant because you all realize that at the end of the beauty pageant even the losers go home nobody goes home after this party you go and you have your night with the king and you have he has sex with you and you're not a virgin anymore and nobody would want you out in, in the world anyway but even if they did they can't get you because you go from the house of the virgins and after your night with the king you end up in the house of the women and if he calls you again if he takes one of his dolls out of the playhouse he calls you by name and you come back if you pleased him but if you didn't you can stay there the rest of your life alone now a couple of years ago um pat was with me and we had the opportunity to go to Istanbul Turkey and we were following the the voyage of Paul and we ended up in a uh Turkish sultan's palace and the gu- the guide told us he goes now this this um is one of the this is the last eastern palace that was built after this they are all have the western influence and they're different and so he said we're going to go into this harem and he goes this would have been very much like the harem that Esther would have been kept in only it would have been much smaller because and I'll explain that in a little, in just a second. So I want to tell you what the harem would look like. So the see the door back there? Look Yeah, it's okay. We're not we're not mad at you for leaving. It's totally okay. We love you. But we're just yes. That poor girl. Bad timing, really. Totally bad timing. That that door, you see that door back there? Imagine that that is just one panel of a door and then there's another one beside it the equal size. These were giant and there was a single door in each and they were giant doors that opened, you know, and they would push these giant doors open and then there was a tiny little door for people to go in and out of if you weren't. And this was the doorway into the harem. But during the day, you would open those doors maybe in the morning. and then you walked into a hall that looked like this only longer and all down the left side of the hall like okay we came in those doors we're well, left the left okay all along the left side going this direction we walked into the harem is a giant counter and it's it's all marble in here it's beautiful and there's a giant marble counter and there's a trough on the floor that's cut out of the marble like this and on that counter is where all the food would have been put for all the girls who lived in the harem. And so they would fill however much food was coming into those ladies that day, and then all the servants had to leave. And then the eunuchs had those same doors are here. And they opened those doors. And then if you went right outside those doors, then once those doors were open the the maids that were waiting on the 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 harem girls would come and get their food right but they had to pass by the apartments of the eunuchs the eunuchs so imagine now now see i have to get up okay we we got this so imagine now that we've gone through the first hall now we're in the hall of the eunuchs okay There're three stories up. There're little rooms, and inside of each one of these rooms is where the eunuchs lived, who then took care of these uh harem girls. Now, a eunuch, for those of you who don't know, is a man who's castrated, right? He can no longer have children, but because they were always worried about the bloodline of the king, right? Not only are they um castrated men, but they're they're African men. because and they 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 were from Ethiopia or another African country because they wanted them as black as they could be because the king wasn't black and sometimes the eunuchs would still have relations with the harem women and they could bear a child and so they wanted them to be black so that they had a double indemnity right so that in case the child came out darker skin they would know it was not the child of the king 
So this, you've got apartments, and there's three stories of them, and they're down this hall. And then when we get to the end of the hall where all the eunuchs lived, we go into a honeycomb maze of where all the women stayed. Now, it, there was a pecking order in all of this. The ones that were the favorites of the king or the favorites of the eunuch, as we'll soon find out, they had the best quarters, maybe bigger, a little bit bigger. Um, and they had, a, but most of them stayed in a little room. I mean, and we're, we're not talking a big room. I mean, even the eunuchs who had the nicest rooms, how big do you think those rooms were, Pat? Like 10 by 10 by 20, maybe. Maybe, maybe not 20, maybe 10 by 15 or something. They were, these, that's their apartment. And so these women would go in these rooms, and then there were some beautiful gardens that, that were at the end of the, um, of the quarters. And it was, it was big, you know, it was pretty spacious gardens, and they were beautiful. Uh, but just because it's pretty, it doesn't make it any less a prison. And you will remember that Jewish girls got married at around 12, 13, right? So all the commentators say that uh, these girls they were gathering were probably between the ages of 12 and 17. So this is not a beauty pageant. This, is a, this really looks a lot more like, you know, modern-day sex trafficking. And so these girls were taken. This is not because I volunteered, because I want my chance. With This is not The Bachelor. Right? I've even heard uh, the Esther story compared to The Bachelor. This is not anything like that. No one goes home. No one sees their mother, their father, their brother, their sister, their cousins. Like, this is the end of my life. Just like. And so wouldn't you be tempted if you were Esther to think, mm, where is God? Did he blink? I mean, you know, what happened? And you can imagine, I... I uh, one thing that is so commonly spoke of about Esther is that there's not one commentator who does not agree that she was kind, gracious, and compassionate. And they get that from a lot of the Jewish tradition. Because you know the Jews are highly interested in Esther. That's why we have Purim, right? But I couldn't find... The Jewish people don't agree on, on so many things. And, um, you know, but they all agree on that that her character was outstanding, and we can see her character by what the Word of God says about her. And so um, I have to get to that because I have to... Uh, let's see. Oh, I have gone so far. Uh, yeah, so here's it says uh, in Esther chapter 2, verse 9, it says this, Now the young lady pleased him, and that's Hegai, the eunuch, and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her and with cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place or apartment in the harem. And so something about Esther stood out. And I can imagine that there was a lot of crying that went on. There was a lot of, um, there were a lot of girls who were probably terrified, there were other girls who, you know, come on. What is a room full of teenage girls like? Yeah, they can be pretty wow. Wow. Right? So this was this was a rough this this is a rough go. And historians tell us they rounded up between uh two and three hundred virgins on the first go, and they said that there's a second go. So what happened is now and now we have to really pay attention here because we know uh, that in the, it says this in Esther chapter 1, verse 3, it says that that was when King Artaxerxes, it was the third year of his reign, 
Okay, it's the third year of his reign, and he deposes Vashti and does the virgin search. Okay, and we know that that was December 478 BC or January of 479 BC. Okay, so they are really certain of his dates because he was, because it's the third year of his reign. They know when he went in. Like he's such a big historical uh, figure. So then it says in the fourth year of his reign, the virgin. We know that the virgins start going into him because why? Because it takes one year for the virgins to get ready. And all I have to say to that is, and my husband thinks it takes me a long time to get ready. But for one year, they go into this beauty treatment, and they did a lot. Uh, Persia was famous for perfume. Like, that was their thing. That was one of their major exports. And so for them to, and they had, they had come up with ways um, you know, like, oh, this is so interesting. Do you want to hear this? Yes. Okay. If this is getting boring, you should just raise your hand, and we'll cut to the chase and call it a day. But this is just, just, just this is for free. It's not even in the notes. But I learned this, which was so fascinating to me, that, um, you know, charcoal they use now, it's all back in, in vogue again because it, it does a lot of detoxification for your body. Well, back then, they would build these little fires, and then they would put these essential oils, which we all know about. They put them in this, the charcoal of it, and then they would stand with their garments. They would make a little like tent of themselves, and they would stand over that essential oil, and they would breathe it, and they would let it. And they said after a while, they would do this like daily, and after a while, their skin would absorb so much of the... That they became the fragrance themselves, and it was—it's a fascinating thing. I'm, I'm going to go home and try it later, but <laughs> <laughs> but because it just seems. But the thing about it is, the thing about it is, is that the other thing that I learned is that they don't ever do the same. Like it says that they use perfumes and stuff. No perfume was the same for any girl. Every girl had her own, so they would analyze her own. Like, I, I guess there was a, like a way to go through and figure out w what smelled good on you, right? Like, the perfume that smells good on me doesn't necessarily smell good on you, and some of the perfumes that I love on you, I put them on me, and they smell like vinegar. Like, so why is that, right? It's because our own body chemistry has a thing that jives with that perfume. And so they found out, you know, each woman had her own scent. I think that's fascinating. You know, um, and... Not to over-spiritualize, but you realize that we each have our own aroma to the Lord. We have our own scent. That, you know, as we praise him and, and adore him, that that scent goes to the heavenlies as we pray. And he recognizes our scent. It's unique to each one of us. I think, I don't know, I just found that just kind of interesting. But, okay, so year three, he gets rid of his queen. Year four, he... He um, now they've had a year. Oh, the other reason they waited a year is they waited to see if any of them got pregnant, right? Because there could never be a doubt about the heir. So they would wait one year. If you were pregnant, it would come out, and you're out of the game. All right. So then on year five and six, almost two years go by, and hundreds of virgins later, it, then Esther gets called in year seven. Now, just wait and think about this. This is the first time I really thought about this. She doesn't go in, like, on night three. This eunuch likes her. He sees her as a... He likes... He doesn't make her go. Why? She probably wasn't ready to go. I mean, a year even, after a year, and I'm sure they taught them lots of things, which is also in the commentaries, but... You realize the mercy of this eunuch. He let her grow up for three years. For th and we know what difference three years can make when you're a teenager, right? And she might have been in prison, and she might not have had, but he let her wait for three years. Now, here's, he, he liked having her around. She was a good girl, and it made life better for everybody because she was there. And so he was happy to help her not have her night quite so quickly. But after three years, now, really, I mean, it could have been also because the king did go to war with Greece, you know, like for a second. 
So he wasn't, you know, making merry every night. But now this is also where we need to, now we're going to focus in on this. It says now, this is verse 12, okay? So we've gone year five and six, almost two years and hundreds of virgins. And of course, this is, this is what was happening when each virgin would go into the king. Verse 12, chapter 2. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Artaxerxes or Ahasuerus, whichever your Bible says, after the end of, the, of her 12 months under the regulations for the women for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women, the young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, right? Remember, she's been with all the virgins living in these catacombs of huts, or they were nice. They weren't huts. They were, you know, apartments. And then in the morning, she has her night with the king. Then the next morning, they come and get her, and she gets taken to the house of the women where you would live out your days with the other wives. And now you get a new eunuch, and his name is Shashgaz. And the king's eunuch who is in charge of the concubines, because now you're officially a, a concubine. You're not really a wife. You're a concubine. And she would not go again to the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned. And um, so what happened is when they go in... Now, what I want you to pay attention to, you can underline this part. It says... For the days their beautification were completed, and the young lady would go in, verse 13, to the king in this way. Anything she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. So the Jewish commentators, this is another place there's a lot of agreement. They said that those girls then were allowed to take something from the harem. So in other words, their jewelry, their whatever. And then whatever they, they could wear on their person, they would take it with them and have their night with the king and then they would be able to take this jewelry probably is what everyone thinks and take it with them into the house of the women now why is this important what do inmates in prisons want they want things that they can buy things with right there's no there's no way to earn money in there so these gals were coming out bedecked with jewels right because that's going to become their currency in their next life so this is why it is very important that we look at Esther at this juncture. Because what does Esther do? So the girls would have manifested greed. They would take their treasure and as they transition from the virgin housing to become inmates in the house of women. So, but this is what, it's finally Esther's turn. And um, I got to find my verse. Oh, here, think what? Thank you. Like we need, we need the Bible because these notes have just gone to pot. All right, here we go. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go to the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. You know, she didn't think about what she was going to do. In the, she had already, and this is what's so important. Esther loved God, and she had what I would call Christ-like character. And you can say, Tammy, Christ wasn't born yet. How can someone have Christ-like character? Because Jesus is God. And when someone follows after God, the character of Jesus is the character of God, Right? So we have this God-like character inside of Esther. And we know this because she exhibits Philippians 4.13. Let me read it for you. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know both how to be abased and get along with humble means, and I know how to abound of prosperity in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need I can do all things 
through Christ who strengthens me. And so here's a woman who does not know if the rest of her days are enslaved in the house of the women, or she has, or her one night with the king turns out to be that she becomes the. She has no idea what's going before her, and yet she humbly takes the advice of the eunuch, and she goes before the king, and and, and the eunuch dresses her, and she was at peace either way. Now, that's what God desires of us. See, she, she could trust him even in the difficult moment. And I honestly think that this woman, I don't think she cared. I think she would have gone to the house of the women and she was content. Man, I strive. I don't know about you. I, I struggle with contentment sometimes. And God wants us to know that he is in control and we don't have to strive. That he will get us to the center of his will because he wants us there more than we want to be there. And when we love him and follow him, he's perfectly able to move the pieces to get us where he needs us when he needs us there. She waited three years. And you got to imagine, man, like women were going every night, someone else, one of your friends, your best friend, whoof, gone, never see them till you get to the other side. Sort of like heaven, you know, it's crazy. But she was tempted. She was tempted. She was an orphan. She was kidnapped to be a sex slave. She was imprisoned with other girls who were also kidnapped for the same purpose. She had to hide her identity. We didn't even go over that, but at the last second, Mordecai says, don't tell anyone you're a Jew, for heaven's sake. Well, the Jews didn't eat pork. They didn't eat, right? They didn't eat the king's rich food. You remember the guys? You know, that's what Daniel said. We're not eating that food. Gee, I've never eaten that food, and now blend in, honey. Like, this goes against everything that she, she would have thought never to marry a pagan. So Esther has, she's, she's, and she's elevated while she waits. God saw her. Finally, the night arrives, and, and she goes, and she's chosen. She would be the queen. And in a short time, she would risk her own life and go before the king to save her people. All right, that's as far as we're going to go in the story tonight. Now, I want you to close your eyes right where you sit, and I'm going to ask you a couple questions, and I want you to think about these things with me. With all that has happened to Esther, being stripped from her family, knowing she would be forced into behaviors and practices that went against her beliefs about marriage and maintaining sexual purity, knowing she would lose her virginity, a single woman's honor in that society, and then possibly be tossed aside, never to be seen again. Esther could have thought that her life was unfair. She was indeed a victim, but she did not remain a victim, but became a victor. Her story offers hope to all of us who face traumatic, life-altering situations and trouble of any kind. If God can work through fears and dangers to accomplish Esther's destiny, then he certainly can work through mine to accomplish my destiny. Have you ever felt like your destiny has been taken? Maybe when the opposition seems unbearable, you wonder if God cares. Maybe you feel alone in the world with its suffering and injustice and pain. I am here to tell you that you are not alone. God promises to never leave you or forsake you, nor does he send harm upon his daughters. But we have a very real enemy who seeks to steal, 
kill and destroy all of your hope. He doesn't want you to know or fulfill your destiny. And he will do this by causing you to blame God for the evil that the enemy has sent into your life. Lord, I pray that my sisters in Christ will hear the healing that you want to bring to them tonight. And that they will allow you to bring water to the scorched places in their hearts and in their lives so that you can fulfill their destiny in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we come to the close, I've asked my oldest daughter, Amy, to speak to you tonight on how to move from being a victim to being a victor. I want you to hear her story so that you have courage to embrace your destiny regardless of your past or your present troubles. <laughs>